well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. We are going to be talking about the uh, announcement, which I guess is coming out on Friday. Uh, Joe Biden creating an Office of Gun Violence Prevention in the White House. What does this mean? How concerned should we be? Well, we'll delve into that here in just a second. But speaking of Joe Biden, you know, Biden's America, it's crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers one after the other. America's working two jobs just to get by. Inflation pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the price of lunch meat or potato chips the next time you go to the grocery store. And a digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy your way of life. The truth is you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that is why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, with thousands of five-star reviews. And they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. Right now, they're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. So the Washington, Repo- or Washington Post reporting on uh, Tuesday night that uh, Joe Biden and the uh, vice president will make an official announcement on Friday at the White House, the uh, creation of an Office of Gun Violence Prevention. This is something that gun control groups have been calling for basically since Biden took office. Uh, What's interesting is that over the past couple of years, there have been reports that uh, Cedric Richmond, who was sort of running point on gun control in the Biden administration, uh, was not keen on the idea of developing that office. Don't really know why. This was political infighting. But uh, now, for whatever reason, and I think the uh, reason will become obvious here in a moment or two, um, Biden has decided to move forward with this office. According to the Washington Post, Greg Jackson, a gun violence survivor who's the executive director of the Community Justice Action Fund, and Rob Wilcox, the senior director for federal government affairs at Everytown for Gun Safety, are expected to have key roles in the office. The new office will report up through Stephanie Feldman, the White House staff secretary, and a longtime Biden policy aide who's worked on the firearms issue for years. People close to the uh, uh, news have said Feldman previously worked in the Domestic Policy Council and still oversees the gun policy portfolio at the White House. So I don't think it's any coincidence that a couple of months ago, all of the major gun control groups endorsed Joe Biden for reelection in 2024. Now, that's pretty early, right? We, we know that Biden's going to be the presumptive Democratic nominee unless he decides or is unable to uh, continue his campaign. But it was Again, a little early for the gun control groups to make this announcement. So is this payback? I think kind of, yeah, I do. (laughs) I think this is the gun control lobby going all in on Biden and Biden saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to go in all in with you. You're going to have not only a seat at the table, but you're going to have an office at the White House. So what exactly is this office going to do? Well, Shannon Watts talked to the Washington Post about it. Uh, feigned not to know, or or at least professed not to know, uh, that this announcement was coming. She said, if this announcement is, in fact, the creation of a single point of leadership on gun violence in the administration, it's a very big deal for the movement. For years, she said, we've advocated for a centralized team responsible for coordinating federal and state resources and mobilizing movement partners, a governmental focal point dedicated to creating a framework for overseeing national policy, research, and resources would be more than symbolic. It would be a significant turning point for the gun control movement. 
Now, there are a couple of things uh, worth kind of digging into there with uh, Watts's comment. She talked about a, a centralized team responsible for coordinating federal and state resources. So what does that look like? Um, you know, we've actually seen a number of cities, and we're going to get into this here in just a minute, develop their own Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Uh, and basically what those offices are being used for uh, is sort of a pass-through, funneling grant money, whether it's federal or state, or in some cases even local grant funds, to uh, anti-violence groups. Now, the problem is, well, we've seen a couple of problems. In some cases, those funds have been slow in being deployed. In other cases, those funds have been given without a uh, whole lot of transparency and oversight. Uh, and in a couple of the uh, places that have established this Office of Gun Violence Prevention, uh, gun violence has not been prevented. Crime is actually going up, as we'll get to. But the other thing that uh, Shannon Watts said that I think is interesting is she talked about mobilizing movement partners. And I think this is probably the most dangerous aspect, as far as gun owners are concerned, of the Office of Gun Violence Prevention being established by the Biden White House. Again, this doesn't just give gun control groups a seat at the table. This gives them an office in the executive branch for them to work out of, right? You've got uh, one of the uh, uh, heads of every town coming on to work in the office in some capacity. And I'm guessing that uh, when this office is fully staffed, you're going to see a sprinkling of activists from every town, Moms Demand Action, Brady, Giffords, um, and maybe even some of these smaller gun control groups as well. And this office can then be used, again, to coordinate all kinds of activities uh, with the help of the gun control lobby, right? So it can be everything from you know, organizing rallies in opposition to pro-gun bills that are coming up in legislatures or uh, organizing rallies in favor of gun control legislation, uh, directing these federal funds to favored organizations, right? That's another concern I think we should have, not just as gun owners and Second Amendment advocates, but as good government advocates. Because again, what we've seen at the local level when similar offices have been put in place uh, is that the money is either, again, slow in being directed or where it's being directed isn't effective at reducing gun violence. For example, in Colorado, they actually set up a statewide Office of Gun Violence Prevention. There was an audit that was done earlier this year. It's very critical of the fact that I think two years or so after this office had been established, uh, they hadn't started handing out grants, right? So th this was a case of uh, we're setting up this office and then the office really hadn't done much. So after this audit came out, uh, apparently lit a fire there under the office, and they started handing out money left and right. Um, some of the grants, and this is from the KUNC, uh, some of the grants, $450,000 distributed to 29 different community groups. Uh, Lainey Sheffield, who is a campaign manager for Colorado Ceasefire, which is the state's largest gun control group, uh, got a hold of some of that money, as KUNC reported, um, earlier this year, Sheffield helped teach a classroom of teenage girls at a summer camp in Denver how they could all help prevent gun violence. So, again, this is one of the products of Colorado's Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Sheffield, again, works directly with the state's biggest gun control group. For two hours, she and two teenage interns taught the girls about Colorado's new red flag laws. Yeah, one of my favorite activities at summer camp, by the way, when I was a kid, loved 
to have two hour lectures on legislation. <laughs> My favorite part of summer camp uh, for two hours. She and two teenage interns taught the girls about Colorado's new red flag laws, which let people ask a judge to temporarily take guns away from someone who poses a risk to themselves or others. They played videos full of data about gun violence and methods to reduce it. This is my favorite part. The girls also learned what to do if they're concerned about a parent, about how a parent or adult is storing a firearm. Sheffield, the gun control activist, said, just totally stop what you're doing. Don't touch it. Leave the situation and go tell an adult. Does that sound familiar to you? Sounds familiar to me. Uh, but, you know, I talked a lot about the NRA's Eddie Eagle program in my time at, uh, at NRA News. And, of course, Eddie Eagle, what does he say? If you see a gun, stop, don't touch, run away, tell an adult. Exactly the message that the gun control activists are selling in Colorado. Now, look, I don't mind that. But do you think the Office of Gun Violence Prevention in Colorado is going to give a grant to the NRA? To put the Eddie Eagle program on in public schools across the state? Of course not. Instead, they're going to give that money to gun control groups who will deliver that very same message. Yeah. This is almost governmental welfare for the gun control lobby. Uh, and a perfect example of this is what happened in Philadelphia with the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. This was from the Philadelphia Inquirer in March of this year. A key Philly gun violence prevention program is struggling to meet basic goals, new report says. A new set of city commission reports say the community crisis intervention program is failing to properly train and empower staffers and struggling to achieve basic goals. The uh, Inquirer said that uh, one of the key Community-based anti-violence programs in the city is disorganized, failing to properly train and empower staffers, struggling to achieve basic goals, and not ready to be evaluated on whether its efforts are meaningfully reducing the city's gun violence. That, according to a new set of reports commissioned by the city's Office of Violence Prevention, which funds and oversees the Community Crisis Intervention Program, an initiative in which community members, known as Credible Messengers, seek to develop positive relationships with people at risk of shooting someone or getting shot. Last year, CCIP received $5.3 million in city funds. And again, what does the city have to show for it? Not much. Because after millions of dollars in funds, this program is not ready for prime time. Now, is that program going to get defunded? Probably not. In fact, might even get more money, right? If the uh, argument is, well, the reason we haven't done enough is because we don't have enough money here. So give us more money. We'll be able to actually, you know, get this program off the ground. I expect to see a lot of this kind of stuff from uh, Biden's Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Again, shoveling federal grants out to various groups. And again, they're probably going to be pass-throughs, right? You got to add to the bureaucracy. So let's say you got a million dollars in grants. Okay, well, we're going to give that million-dollar grant money to the city of Philadelphia. And, you know, they're going to take their little cut to fund their city employees, and then they're going to distribute $800,000 in grants to these community violence intervention programs, which may or may not have any accountability, may be grossly lacking in transparency, and may not even meet or even have metrics by which to judge the effectiveness of these programs. But the money's going to keep going to these groups month after month, and if Biden gets reelected in 2024, year after year. Now, uh, one other city that uh, established an Office of Gun Violence Prevention and hasn't really seen any substantial benefit, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, again, this is a story from earlier in the year. As crime rose, Atlanta failed to spend millions earmarked for violence prevention. 
So again, kind of back to the Colorado model, right? Where we say we've got the office, we say we're going to be making these investments, we're going to be reducing violent crime, we're doing something, by God. And uh, yeah, not much of anything is going on. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the idea was that the mayor needs a non-law enforcement unit that wakes up every morning focused on strategies to reduce gun violence and help coordinate and provide oversight of various anti-violence initiatives. Again, sounds a lot like what the Federal Office of Gun Violence Prevention that Biden's establishing is supposed to do, right? But, as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution wrote, the office has struggled in its first year, losing its founding director after just 11 months, and failing to get off the ground a new $5 million anti-violent street outreach program that was supposed to be its first initiative in 2022. The program, known as Cure Violence, was supposed to be part of an ambitious proposal to invest some $35 million in violence prevention, uh, which the Atlanta Journal-Constitution described as a newer concept in the world of crime fighting that focuses on strategies outside of law enforcement. Now, here's the thing. It's not exactly new. I mean, these sort of, you know, gun violence intervention or community violence intervention strategies, they've been around for decades in some cases. Uh, I, again, back in my time at NRA News, I covered a, a program in Los Angeles called No Guns that was run by a guy named Hector Big Weasel Marikeen. Uh, and his son, Little Weasel. And Hector was a former gang member who had supposedly turned his life around and had started this nonprofit uh, in order to keep kids away from gangs and guns. City of Los Angeles gave him over a million dollars in funds to promote this program. Big Weasel ended up getting arrested uh, and convicted for selling guns <laughs> to undercover ATF agents. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, these programs and the problems with these programs have been around a long time. I'm not disputing that there are some programs that are successful. In fact, I would much prefer a community violence intervention approach than one that says, hey, you know what? We're going to try to criminalize the right to keep and bear arms. Unfortunately, those two things often go hand in hand, right? The community violence intervention is meant to buttress the establishment of a restrictive gun control regime that makes it illegal for the vast majority of us to exercise our Second Amendment rights uh, in public and maybe even in private as well. So there are some concerns here, again, both from a good government perspective and from specifically a, a Second Amendment perspective. And uh, the problems in Atlanta, by the way, don't appear to have gotten any better. Earlier this year, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported the city still lacks a cohesive body leading the way on violence prevention efforts, as the Anti-Violence Advisory Council recommended more than a year and a half ago. A well-functioning office was supposed to cut through the bureaucracy to coordinate violence prevention efforts, not add to the complications. So that is another maybe lesser concern. Would, would probably actually like it if the Biden Office of Gun Violence Prevention was as ineffective and uh, bogged down in bureaucracy as Atlanta's office has been, right? The, the less harm can be done, the less work that's being done. Um, but again, I think we're going to have to, uh, I wouldn't even say take a wait and see approach. I think we should be concerned about what the White House and more specifically what the gun control lobby intends to do with this federal office. Uh, but at first glance, the most likely possibility is that it's going to waste a hell of a lot of money, taxpayer dollars, on programs that are ineffective at stopping violence, and frankly, ineffective at reducing gun ownership as well, which, of course, is the anti-gunner's real agenda. 
Now let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a, a case out of Washington State. Washington State, again, one of those places that has passed all kinds of restrictions, right? We're going to ban high-capacity magazines. We're going to ban assault weapons. Uh, we're going to go after gun stores that continue to sell these things. We're going to make life miserable for legal gun owners. Seattle and Washington State in general have not seen an improvement in their violent crime rate, even as they've added more gun laws to the books. And now you got this story. Now, the headline doesn't really give all the details here. Person suspected of fatally shooting man on South Hill arrested following a car chase. That is the very basic uh, information here. Uh, the individual in question, a, a guy named uh, Antonio Hartman, 18 years of age, arrested in Pierce County, Washington, for the fatal shooting of 19-year-old Kalen Collins during a robbery back on September the 3rd. Collins' body was found on a basketball court that morning, cause of death, listed as multiple gunshot wounds. Monday of this week, uh, deputies in Pierce County spotted Hartman driving a black Ford Fusion with stolen plates. They followed him in unmarked cars. They waited until officers in marked cars arrested him. When they caught up to him, he uh, ended up speeding away as soon as they turned the lights on. He ended up getting into an accident, kind of rear-ended a SUV and a dump truck trailer. Thankfully, the uh, occupants of those vehicles were unharmed. Uh, but once he was stopped, that's when officers were able to get out of the car, take him into custody. Uh, without any further issues, uh, the passenger in that car was a 16-year-old uh, listed as Hartman's girlfriend who was uh, described as a runaway. She was released to her parents. After Hartman was uh, evaluated for injuries at a hospital, he was then booked into the uh, uh, Pierce County Jail. Detectives found a uh, fully loaded pistol with an extended magazine, right? one of those uh, banned large-capacity magazines on the driver's side, another pistol found in Hartman's car. He now faces two, uh, two counts of first-degree murder, first-degree attempted robbery, as well as first-degree unlawful possession of a firearm. Uh, he's pled not guilty to the uh, uh, murder of this 19-year-old. But here's the kicker to this story. And this really does come, I think it's the last line of the story in the News Tribune. Uh, and this is why, of course, this is today's recidivist report. According to charging documents, in October of last year, so less than a year ago, Harmon was convicted in juvenile court of robbery and unlawful possession of a firearm. He received a 12-month suspended sentence and was still on probation. At the time of the shooting. So again, he's 18 years old now. He was 17 years old last year. And because he had not reached the age of majority, his case was referred to juvenile court. And even though these were serious crimes, right? We're told all the time we got to do what we can to stop young people from getting guns. Well, what happens when a young person is caught with a gun in the commission of a robbery? The short answer is nothing happens. Now, the case isn't dismissed, but there are no consequences whatsoever. We're going to put you on probation. Don't do this again. Check in with your probation officer once a month, maybe once every six weeks. Yeah, you're going to have to take a P-test. If you fail, by the way, we're just going to extend your probation. We're not going to put you in juvie. We're not going to put you behind bars, right? Oh, no, that would be unfair to you, good sir. That is what the state of the juvenile justice system in particular, but the criminal justice system overall looks like in Washington State. Again, they're passing more laws, cracking down on lawful gun ownership, and they are absolving violent criminals of their crimes. Today's Armed Citizen story, kind of an unusual twist uh, out of uh, Alabama, where police say a passenger stabbed 
a guy with a gun who was threatening a family while they were delivering for DoorDash. Yeah, and most of our armed citizen stories here involve, uh, you know, the lawful use of a firearm uh, in self-defense. This time around, it was actually a knife that was used against. Yeah, yes, this was a they, the rare case of bringing a knife to a gunfight and it actually working out okay for the person with the knife. Happened back on uh, September 17th in Helena, Alabama. A couple driving for DoorDash. Helena Police Department uh, said in a news release that as they were doing deliveries, they had their kid in the back seat. A woman in another vehicle pulls up to the back of their car and follows them while driving in what police described as an aggressive manner. Eventually, the woman pulls up to the couple and begins screaming at them, accusing them of not using their turn signal. Now, first of all, again, is that annoying? Sure. You know what happens if you just let it go and you drive on and you say, well, that so-and-so. Nothing happens. You get to go on about your day, right? But that's not what happened with this lady. Oh, no, no. Started screaming at them for not using their turn signal. According to the police, the couple's vehicle had engine problems. They couldn't go any faster than a couple of miles an hour, so that meant they could not get away from this woman. As they continued, apparently the car really was having trouble because a guy pulls up in a golf cart. They couldn't even outrun a golf cart. The woman confronting the couple pulls out a gun, and the man takes it from her and then points it at the couple while also screaming at them. Now, at this point, the couple in the car, they try to reverse, uh, but they can't because of the engine problems. So they continue slowly driving down the road. People, I guess at this point now, walking beside them with a gun, screaming at them. Uh, Helena police said just north of Helena Fire Station Number 3, the male subject approached the couple's vehicle and then reached into the rear window. Again, keep in mind there's a kid in the back seat. So he reached into the rear window and began assaulting the driver. Driver was struck by the male subject several times about his head and shoulders and had his shirt ripped off by the male attacker. That's when the man's wife, who's sitting in the passenger seat, pulls out a pocket knife and began, you know, slashing at the guy who police said was attacking her husband. Now. The, keep in mind, the guy's got a gun, uh, but apparently he at least had the presence of mind to realize that escalating this situation would be a terrible, terrible idea. He stopped. He walked away, went to the fire station to seek medical assistance. He had three stab wounds to his right arm. Uh, criminal charges apparently are pending against the uh, man and woman, but the uh, husband and wife, who are just trying to do some deliveries, uh, are not expected to face any charges. The wife acting in defense of her husband. Uh, and yes, a rare circumstance where bringing a knife to a gunfight did not end up badly for the uh, person with the knife. But I hope that uh, this couple, if they continue delivering, first of all, I hope they get their car fixed. But uh, secondly, I, I hope that they'll protect themselves with something more than a pocket knife going forward. Now, I confess, I know that the policies uh, for Uber and Lyft prohibit drivers from lawfully carrying a concealed firearm while they're uh, engaged in in you know doing their rideshare programs. I don't know if DoorDash has the same policy, but honestly, even if they did, better to look for another job because you only got one life. Uh, today's good deed of the day: in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. A, a man in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, just outside of Tulsa, saving a neighbor from their burning home. This happened uh, Monday night about 1045. Veronica Saldivar um, noticed that her neighbor's house was on fire. She's uh, taking a video yelling, our neighbor's house is on fire. Guys, this is awful. 
She had heard something outside. She thought maybe someone was breaking into her car, but it was instead the crackling of the fire. Uh, Celio Saldivar said, I was watching TV and I didn't pay attention to what she was saying. And then my other two daughters came down and they started yelling. And that's when his instinct kicked in. He said, I got out of the door. I ran over there. I didn't think about it. I just do it. So he ran through the yard across a flower bed, got into the front door. There was a woman trapped inside the home, but he was able to find her within just a few seconds, picked her up and carried her to safety. While he's in the home, his wife Veronica calls 911. She said it, it, it felt like forever. She said it, she thinks it took about 15 minutes for firefighters to arrive. A spokesman with the uh, city of Broken Arrow said crews got the fire under control about 15 minutes after they arrived. So within a half hour, the fire's out. But again, that would have been far too late for the woman trapped inside that home. Uh, Veronica and her neighbors also were that the fire would spread to other houses. It did burn the wall of the house directly next to her. But thankfully, the other homes in the neighborhood were uh, uh, unscathed. Uh, Veronica said, you know, if uh, anybody in this neighborhood sees anyone that needs help, they jump in to help. It doesn't matter who we are. Everybody just jumps in and helps each other. Uh, and in this case, the uh, quick thinking and fast action of Celio Saldivar ended up saving the life of one of his neighbors in the right place at the right time. We weren't able to do the right thing. We thank you for your very, very good deed. And that is about all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I do want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. And I'm looking forward to being back with you again tomorrow. Who knows what the news will bring. Hopefully we'll have uh, maybe a good legal decision to talk about. The uh, court case continuing in Harney County, Oregon over Measure 114. That trial expected to last all week. But we'll have updates for you at BearingArms.com. And uh, all of the other major Second Amendment stories of the day as well. All I have to do, go to Bearing Arms. If you want to become a VIP member or a VIP gold member, just go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP or VIP gold membership. Not only will you get the warm, fuzzy feeling of supporting the independent pro Second Amendment journalism that we do at the website, but we're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else because your support really does matter, and it does make a difference. So thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your hump day Wednesday, weekend almost in sight. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.